0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Strong Towns Podcast. Today, we're running audio from the second episode of our new webcast series, Ask Strong Towns. This webcast is hosted on a monthly basis by Chuck Marone and other Strong Towns staff and friends. In it, we give you the chance to ask your burning questions about our vision for change and how the Strong Towns approach might apply in your unique place. The webcast is open to all Strong Towns members, and you can find more information by visiting the Ask Strong Towns page on our website. I'll include the link in the show notes. So today we've got the audio from a special edition of Astrong Towns that we did earlier this week with our friend Joe Minicosi. Joe is a principal at the urban analytics firm Urban3, which you might recognize from their fantastic tax value graphics that we often share and discuss on our website. In this episode, Chuck hosted a conversation with Joe to discuss a whole range of questions. Everything from how to use tax value data to present a compelling argument to your local leaders, to why our cities keep building more infrastructure even when they know they're going broke. One thing to note is that during this webcast, Joe shared some graphics and illustrations. If you'd like to see those, just head to the podcast page on our website where we've also posted the video of this webcast. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that you'll join us on the next live webcast, which is taking place May 14th, if you want to get your question answered. Become a member today to receive your invite. Okay, now on to this Ask Strong Towns conversation with Chuck Marone and Joe Minicosi. Hey,
0: everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome to our uh, Celebrity Ask Me Anything uh joe you're the you're the celebrity dude you are (laughs) uh you're funny i'm just doing math Uh uh-huh yep that's exactly (laughs) right hi no joe minicozzi uh live from Asheville, north carolina welcome uh welcome to the uh to the broadcast joe
2: thanks for having me it's uh
0: it's nice to see you uh haven't seen you for a couple weeks um the last time we checked out, we're, we were in Boston together. Boston, and uh, you were headed overseas, and I was headed back home after a, a long week. Uh, boy, how time flies, right?
2: Yeah, that was something special. Um, yeah, I was telling people about that that experience of the folks in Mashpee um, essentially polluting their entire water and then complaining about it. And my favorite part was the the elder from the Wampanoag tribe in the back of the room, like watching this all go down with these very uh, self-entitled um, Americans complaining right. about the direction of the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somehow they were going to get the state to pay for it. And then we went to, up to the state house and you did that great show at the, uh, at the Harvard law school. That was a lot of fun. So um, it was, was kind of trip.
0: fun uh, when they said that, you know, we're just going to have to go to the Capitol
2: and have yeah. them pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. And you, and you got to, and you got to ask them, and this and the senators were all like, ha, ha, ha. "Yeah, that
0: that's true." You know, I, I think it was it was kind of fun for me to be able to say, like, "Look, you're the one, one of the most affluent places in the country. I don't think an application from Cape Cod, uh, you know, at, at at in Washington D.C. is going to play real well," um, you know. Uh, but then, I, yeah, when we did go to the Capitol and told them about it, they started laughing. Like, yeah, like we're going to fund their sewer system. So, yeah, you know, we all have our delusions. Um, yeah. So let me, just for the people uh, who are watching, uh, let me go over a couple of ground rules here. I, I know that Kia is on the chat and can answer your questions too about logistics, but there's a and a Q&A button. If you click on that, uh, you will be, uh, a, a, you will, can put a question in there. I am going to do my best to curate those and uh, and ask them to Joe as we go along here. So uh, get your questions in and we'll try to answer as many as we can. Joe and I both have a hard break after 60 minutes because uh, we both have things that we have to do immediately after. Um, but in the 60 minutes we've got, we'll do the best that we can. Joe, I want to start with a couple things right off the bat. The first one being uh, the, the, the very first kind of presentation I ever saw you make, you juxtaposed, and I, I think if people t- type in Google Joe Minicozzi, they will get this graphic, the Walmart in Asheville versus the downtown uh, building that you were part of renovating. I, I'd I'd like you to take a moment to go through that And, and kind of talk a little bit about just the backstory of what prompted you to actually put that graphic together. What were some of the conversations that were happening in Asheville and, and, and how did that get you to the point where you're
2: like, Hey, look, we got to look at this a little bit differently than we are. Sure. Sure. Um, can I do my screen sharing now?
0: If you want to do screen sharing, the only problem is that screen share doesn't work real well on podcasting, but, uh. As long as you describe what we're looking at, uh, people won't throw stones at me.
2: I can describe it. Yeah. Um, So basically you can see my screen now. I kind of sort of have to talk myself through the imagery. So uh,
0: I think you have, you must have like the most souped up computer of anyone I've ever seen because you always have 50 windows open with these high graphics things going on. So
2: I'm a visual learner. Um, So, so, Yeah, uh, I was working with this company, Public Interest Projects. We actually still share their space with them. And Pat Whalen um, is the trustee of Julian Price, who invested this money into downtown. It was mostly about making downtown livable, a lot of Jane Jacobs stuff, getting um, people living downtown and then uh, ground floor activity. But um, Pat was doing this um, case of presenting information to the community, um, and he was... you know, we have this huge PowerPoint called the environmental and economic case for urbanism, and it's it's just all the data that's out there that we've known about. A lot of the environmental stuff about the urban, urbanism side was um, from the um, uh, from the Department of Energy, and most of the stuff, the EPA. Most of the stuff is out there, and and so what we have in Asheville is people on the left the think that somehow developers are evil and buildings are destructive for the planet, even though they all live in buildings and people on the right in, in this area think that downtown subsidized that somehow the free market wouldn't produce that if, if it were, if it were happening. And of course, obviously the free market's producing suburbia. So that's what, what the market wants. Um, And what we were seeing is the, the valuation change of the city um, in the city, putting some investments into the downtown. So, so, public interest projects wouldn't have invested downtown if it weren't for the city doing some things like relaxing the parking codes, doing some streetscape projects and stuff like that. But there are people that complain about, oh, that's $26 million in parking structures and sidewalks. So um, one of the buildings that is kind of known, if anybody's seen one of my presentations, you see me talk about this old JCPenney's building that that got us, quote, subsidy, air quotes there, of, of a sidewalk, a garbage can, a bike rack, two benches and a street tree. So basically the city committed to an urban environment and therefore these species of birds show up saying, oh, we're going to fix buildings. Um, so we made retail or public interest projects did retail on the ground floor office and then residential. And so, you know, we're telling the community like, hey, that's a 3,500% increase in taxes on that same property. That's a huge gain in taxes. Um, and then, you know, people immediately shot back, well, you know, the Walmart's at $20, 000, $20 million, The Walmart's double the value. It's like, well, that's kind of an apples and oranges argument. You know, when you look at the actual tax productivity, um, you know, my house is producing 20,000 an acre. Our building downtown is producing 600,000, 634,000 an acre and the Walmart six thousand five hundred. So, so Pat was doing these analytics and basically normalizing it because he was trying to make a case. When I saw this as an urbanist and somebody's worked in this field for a couple decades, one of the things I saw immediately was like, why make a big argument? Why not just go right to the source and talk about the cash flow and leave it at that? All the other arguments fall by the wayside when you start talking about money. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like, we tend to like try to make a bigger argument than we need to. And what ends up happening is the audience just tunes out, you know, just, this is too much information. I don't trust you. Um, all of that. So, so I was trying to find a way to like make it more simple. Um, so I use a lot of jokes, you know, I I, I talk about cash crops and marijuana versus soybeans and, you know, what would you do? This gets a big laugh in lots of places. And even looking at the retail numbers, you know, at a retail level, um, a Walmart produces 47500 in retail taxes. And again, this is based on the numbers that we had And our building downtown um, kicks it up about 114000 an acre. So the total tax gain is 51000 for the Walmart and four fourteen for for our building downtown. Um, more jobs in our building. We even have more residential. So there's a slide that I just put up. And, and this is what I was presenting when I showed up on that panel with you um, was, you know, keep it simple, show the numbers, uh, do the math and, and explain your productivity. Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I'm sure you've been in the situation where, because you talk about money and numbers, they stick you on an economics panel. So I was right. stuck in an economics panel with you and I was like, oh, this is going to be boring. <laughs> and then, and, um, cause usually it's like people showing spreadsheets and it's right. painful to watch the PowerPoint lots of bullet points that people are reading. And you got up there and just decimated the road costs and that had been the weakness of our whole argument that we were talking about money coming out of the ground with no investment into the ground and and there you are talking about here's our investment into the ground and we're not getting any money back you know so it's like chocolate and peanut butter meeting for the first time i was like dude i like your stuff yeah it was kind (laughs) of fun and so we have done
0: when i saw when i saw your stuff it answered every question that i was struggling with at the time
2: it really same here Yeah. yeah yeah So uh,
0: let me let me ask you this, and then we've got some questions I wanna I wanna go to. Why? What? Let me let me phrase this the way that my local council member has. My local council member say, "Well, Walmart, uh, they pay a lot of tax. They're pretty. They're they're really big. Um, this seems like not right to to make it by air by acre. Like, why would you? What? Why is by acre a better way to look at it than just by? by block or by lot?
2: Well, um, God, I mean, it's acres are all that you have. So a city is a boundary of land. It's your corporate boundary, right? So the only thing that you have are acres. And when people say to me, they're like, well, you know, Joe, you're not being fair, that, that Walmart's bigger, so the number is bigger. It's like, well, yeah, then if you want to be fair that way, then you need to do the same for the downtown and you should have 34 acres of your downtown. You know, it's like, no matter if if you're being intellectually honest about this and you're being fair about your land, the downtown will always win or anything that's two stories and greater, you know, it's, or that has some density and then it gets down to, to the building cheapness factor. Um, so, you know, you and I went to, uh, that assessor's conference meeting in Kansas city. Right. Um, when was that 2010 or something? Um, and it was mostly just to kind of figure out what the hell they were doing. Uh, we, our, our, I don't know if you remember this, but our lead slide was that picture of Ross Perot and Admiral right. <laughs> and it's like Who are we? Why are we here? Who are we? Why are we here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, we were definitely fish out of water. And we were there just to figure out, like, how the hell do these guys operate? Um, but what was interesting is the Walmart people were there making their case. Um, and I think it was in... I kept on going a couple more years after you, that. It was the
0: year after you and I were there. I actually have the recording on my computer here because you recorded it and sent
2: it to me. Actually, I need to get you to send that back to me. I totally forgot that. Um, got it yeah. right here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Go ahead and email it to me. But that was, yes, yeah, Sacramento. Um, what's his name? Uh, Charles Terrell, who's the head of property tax for Walmart, was going off about showing how cheap his buildings are to the assessors. Now, assessors are agnostic you know if you if you have a cheap building it's a cheap building they're not gonna they can't make more value in that um and and the assessors are pretty rigorous about their math and how they do things so uh Terrell was showing numbers about how cheap his buildings are, and I thought this was brilliant like this guy's getting all of his property taxes lowered in one meeting right pretty yeah, efficient
0: way to do things smart
2: yeah. Yep. Um, And I asked him, I said, so Mr. Terrell, what's the useful life of one of your buildings? And he immediately shot back 15 years, maybe 20. We designed that building to depreciate it down as quick as possible, build another building to move on. So just, you know, it's, it's not, we, we tend to, people tend to vilify the development community. Uh, This developer's bad, that strip mall developer's bad, that Walmart developer's bad. And without seeing the, the context of the pool of which they're all playing. So, so, you know, our attitude is don't hate the player, hate the game, that, that these people are playing a game in a system that we need to be in tune to. So the same level that we should be poking at standards of highway building or the fact that, um, you know, that, that you and I have had this conversation before with uh, Nate Silver, that the, the the thousands of permutations that right. the weather system uses to do hundreds of different models just to predict the weather for the next 48 hours Yet the hubris the engineering profession has right. to predict the traffic flow 20 years out with one model.
0: With a ruler so not- and a straight line. Yeah, I know.
2: Yeah. So so there's, you know, humans do this. We try to simplify things and there are massive amounts of inefficiencies that, that come spiraling out of these policies, most of which are unintended. You know, right. there, there is the intentional bad stuff. Like uh, there's a lot of businesses like Lowe's, uh, Walmart's now in on it but it's called the dark stores initiative where right. they're trying to get comps of empty buildings to be the comp of a, of an, of an occupied building. And it's just, you know, that, that fails the basic six, six greater litmus test of, okay, if you're going to, if you're, if, if my commercial buildings equal to an empty building, well then the same should be true of my house. Right. You know? So, but the thing is, it's like, you know, this stuff gets baked in state policy sometimes And then we in the cities get stuck dealing with it. So it's not a a free market at that situation.
0: Right. All right. Alex Pline, one of our longtime founding members, in fact, he wants to know uh, if you have any open source, (coughs) free or paid service recommendations for creating heat maps if you have the data. So this is a technical question. He's got the data. How do you create the maps? Is this something that... uh, you know, I gotta buy Arc whatever, or is there is there other other ways to do this?
2: Well, uh, we use we use Esri software, which is which is pricey, um, and that's how we get into the three dimensional stuff. But there are um, there are shareware versions of uh, of GIS software. I think Q, QGIS um, is the biggest one out there. Um, I'm just going to be honest with the audience here. I actually don't know how to use GIS software. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's... You're not the it's, technical. Yeah. I am not. I'm not a technical person. So I'm a visual person and I'm a storyteller. So um, that's more of a question for Josh or Will. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think QGIS is the big one. There's a lot of stuff on Mapbox that I don't quite know what that is. Can you, so.
0: can you talk a little bit about, and, and I don't want you to divulge anything, I'm not, I'm not asking you to divulge anything that's proprietary, but I know you've had some discussions with the Esri people, and I know you've had some, some conversations about how we could model some of this stuff and bake it into some of their analyses. They have some great plugins. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that, uh, about what you see coming from the industry and, and how maybe some of this might at some point become more standard.
2: Well, it's, it's becoming more and more standard uh, mostly because people are starting to be more aware of, um, you know, the, the, the visibility that you get going from two dimensions to three dimensions, the amount of information that comes out of the model. So when we show a 2d map, you know, to go from red to purple, it's like, all right, I, w- I just went from red to purple. You don't really understand the scale of that step. So that's the reason why we advocate 3d and it's kind of, baked into our name that three at, at the end of urban is supposed to be cubed. So it's supposed to be superscript meaning a three-dimensional environment and three-dimensional information. Um, I couldn't get that one past the IRS though. So it's just urban three. So people ask us all about where's that three come from? Are you just three people? It's like, no, it's three dimensions. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's there's, there's nothing proprietary about it other than there is an art to the display of the information um, that's our, it's our practice, you know? So when this information is pumped out in 3d, there's a lot of monkeying around that happens across the entire model to make it visually read the way it's supposed to. So that's one of the hard parts about why as can't standardize this is that a dollar of value in North Carolina is different from a dollar of value in South Carolina. And there's all sorts of other stuff baked into the the assessment policies there's also a lot of human error um the easiest way to think about it is uh think of a condominium well actually let's go back to that old Chinese it, building.
0: it's astounding to me and let me just add this while you're making that shift it's astounding to me how much human error there is in assessment yeah. files i mean we we actually have run into um and i i, I don't want to disparage anyone Personally, I won't mention any names, but we've run into some real like retrograde assessment offices where you have, I mean, stuff in CRAN and on, you know, note cards. And in an age of, of technology where you should be able to map this stuff up and see these anomalies, uh, the way that we're doing this, which literally is costing cities millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, it's just bizarre to me. It's 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 been a a, a, a real eye opening thing for me to see how backward we are in this very critical department. So go ahead. Well,
2: yeah, and then, and it's just. I would just tell all the audience, just, just don't be frustrated by this. And it's not a nefarious plot. There's no one out to get anybody else. It's just, there, it's just something that a lot of people haven't done. There, there are cities that are progressive, air quotes, that are super advanced. They're very proud of their planning. They're very proud of everything. And they haven't, they haven't worked on their GIS for five or ten years. And, and that's like you know, that's not, not, main, not maintaining your air filter in your car. It's like, why would you do that? You know, So it's, these systems have to run and you have to constantly stay on top of the data to make it better. And there, you know, there are people that are within GIS that are very frustrated by the lack of attention that they get inside government where they're just asked to produce a zoning map. And you know, that, that takes them a whopping 10 minutes to just hit the print button right. and they get a zoning map. That's not GIS. So there's a whole field. If anybody is like a real map nerd um, and loves this kind of stuff, there's a whole, there's a whole sub-profession called geodesign. Um, that actually goes back to all to Ian McCarg in the 1960s, where he was promoting this kind of stuff of looking at the world through layers. And he used to do it all by hand. And I I do recommend reading McCarg's design with nature to pretty much everybody. And he was talking about, this as an economic argument that, that why are we destroying the planet? It's against our own interests from an economic perspective. And, and we've sort of lost that conversation. So I, you know, the magic of our firm is that we bring that back into the, into into today's environment, but it's all Ian McCard.
0: Right. Um, James Jones asked about sales tax and he he actually says later, I I think you answered my questions with the, uh, the Walmart slide, but I want to ask you a a, a related question about sales tax. Oftentimes we get this question when I'm presenting stuff, people will say, um, you know, how, how do you, how do you include and how do you calculate sales tax? Can you just talk about maybe a little bit the differences from state to state and region to region on how sales tax is treated and how you would account for that? And and maybe even get a little bit into how we did it in Lafayette because I thought that was a... I thought the the, the nuance that we tried to deploy in Lafayette seemed novel to me. Maybe it wasn't to you, but but it it seemed to me to be kind of a novel way of of looking at it.
2: Yeah, sales tax is kind of a... It's kind of a finicky thing. Sales tax is different in every state. Um, and its application at a local level is different in every state. So, um, you know, we can get the data at a local level. When I say local level or a parcel level, like what is, what is Jane's uh, beauty store make versus Joe's barbershop? Um, in in uh, places like Colorado or California, But but as as a consultant, we have to sign an agreement of confidentiality that we can't display what they make, but I can show what the district that they're in makes. So if there's a strip mall area, and let's say it's a mile long corridor coming out of town, from a planning perspective, I, I don't care what individual businesses do, but I care about the productivity of that land use typology, right? So from a mapping perspective, I only have to show this corridor produces this versus the downtown that produces that and the mall that produces this. Um, that's important in places like California and Colorado, where a lot of the retail taxes come back to the local municipality. It's also important in places like Alabama, where we can get that information. But in North Carolina, we're not allowed to get that information at all, which is mind blowing. Right. Um, now, luckily most of North Carolina sales taxes that are produced in Asheville go up to Raleigh at the state. The state consumes the majority of it. And just does what it will in this right. very, just, I don't, we, yeah, you can call it socialistic, although we're all Republicans apparently, um, where they take our dollars and you redistribute them throughout the state without any strings attached. So for every dollar that's produced in Asheville in sales tax, we get about seven cents back. So, you know, that doesn't even matter to measure it. You know, so our city is, all intent and purposes, run off property taxes. Um, you know, depending on where you are in the country, and, and there's a chart that I have up right now. It's data that we got from the um, Tax Policy Center, which is a national think tank um, that studies this stuff across this, across the country. Um, you know, if you're in places like Louisiana, Alabama, o- Oklahoma, your municipalities run off retail taxes. If you're in place like Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Wisconsin, your cities pretty much run off property taxes. So it doesn't even matter to run your retail taxes. And in places like Oregon, Montana, they don't even have retail taxes. So, so be aware of, of your where if it matters or not. And then ask your finance officer. By the way, the easiest thing to do is just pull your city's budget and just look at the revenues that come in as a proportionality test. How much money's coming in from property tax? How much is coming in from retail tax? And then start with the big stuff. You know, start with whatever the largest chunk of your money that's coming in. Start there. You know, um, so you know if you're getting forty percent of your city's revenue out of property taxes and six percent out of retail taxes, it's kind of foolish to have a retail tax argument. But just you know, the majority of your money is coming from property taxes. Now, there's a whole other discussion that gets into chains versus locals. Uh, retail production. We've seen in the data that we've studied that local small mom and pops produce more per square foot. Uh, we did a study in Durango, and a coffee shop and a bookstore on Main Street were producing five times the retail sales per square foot of a Walmart. It's like we had the data, so we looked. Right, you know? right, right. Um, You know, so that, that's the thing is like we do have some of those reports that we can pass on to you all. Um, and and the thing that I found with people is you always have to m- make it a local. Um, understand you can 't show like, oh, this is what Durango did
0: I also feel like the way Josh approached um, Lafayette, which was to um, <coughs> not necessarily ascribe every sale to the big box store, in other words, yeah. I, I think there was an attempt to look at you know what what is the what, what is the family r- consumption rate in other words if if the mall went away or the big box store went away, the family is still going to buy toilet yeah. paper and toothpaste and this, you know, is that really uh, the mall inducing those sales or is it something else? And then, you know, what of the mall sales wouldn't happen but for the mall, you know, the stuff yeah. that is brought in from people coming in from the region to consume, uh, extra consumption that people wouldn't normally do. Uh, so I, I feel like sales tax is this big nuance thing um, that is, uh, you know, l-
2: less clear and less straightforward but yet becomes the obsession for many cities right well it becomes the obsession because you know sometimes like and, and i've seen this with large retailers is they actually have the data so you know I don't, right. I don't blame right i don't blame the the walmart person for coming in and saying this is the amount of sales tax will produce this is the amount of property tax will produce well they've got like 20 people with phds in economics that are on their staff they run these numbers you know the uh, Tim Callahan, the coffee shop owner on Main Street in Durango, he's too busy working, you know, right. so he doesn't have those numbers to make that case. And on top of that, when he puts his numbers into the argument, it's such it looks so small because he's a small shop. It's never normalized onto the per acre or per square foot basis where you start to see apples to apples. So, so you know, it's the politicians tend to get um, uh, seduced. By big numbers, particularly when you get into the, the, the seven digits, you know, it's like, oh, I'm in the millions now. That's exciting. But they never look at it in aggregate to see what other pieces are. And Josh, what he did with, uh, with Lafayette, um, you know, the real jump in logic there was people's choice was put into that model. So you choose to live where you live. So therefore, you're buying down that infrastructure that gets to your house. You're choosing where you're making your purchases. And we're going to pretty much measure that based off your income the average discretionary income is about, you know, 30% of your total, um, uh, gross income. So we could, we could measure that based on where your wealth is, where you're living. And then how do you get to your retail purchases? And you're right. That I think was rifle Colorado. They were really excited about a Walmart. And, um, they asked me during the presentation, there's like, well, are you saying we can't have this Walmart? And I said, well, were you not able to buy toilet paper and jeans before they showed up? I mean, how did you guys survive for 200 years? Right. And then, and then on top of that, it's like, if it's worth it for you to spend 10 cents less per roll of toilet paper, great. As long as you do the math and realize the exchange that you've just put down because you are essentially paying into that, that reduction through your property taxes. and, And the fact that the average Walmart consumes, um, all of its property taxes with the police services that they consume. So, so the deal that you think you're getting and the fact that they're producing all these property taxes is essentially a zero sum game. You're actually losing money. And that's not us. That was Bloomberg ran that analysis. But if you talk to any police department, they'll tell you, they're like, yeah, we're always at the Walmart. Right.
0: I've, I've heard that we have a, we have one police officer who just is basically Walmart duty. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's what forty five thousand dollars a year in salary. Another, you know, go ahead and multiply it times two and a half to add in all of their insurance, their pension. Uh, you know, you need to have you need to have an attorney's department to handle the police department. They need to have an office. They need a car. Once you put all that in, it's, you're looking for one police officer? You're looking at what four hundred thousand dollars a year? It's a
0: huge sum of money. I, yeah. I actually, for me, the thing that was striking, and and, and your data helped me see this. When I was working for the engineering firm here in town, we built the sewer and water around a whole bunch of big box stores. And these were huge dollar amounts. I mean, millions and millions of dollars uh, being spent. And of course, the, the big box store would pay for it. Um, you know, Menards fronted the cost. Home Depot fronted the cost. Super Walmart fronted that cost. Um, but it occurred to me that we're turning this back over to the city now to maintain and those million dollar bills are going to come back up again in my lifetime, uh, you know, maybe more than once, depending on how long I'm around here, uh, you know, the, where's the money going to come to fix this stuff? And it certainly is not going to come from that Walmart, particularly if that Walmart is only around for 15 years uh, and turns into one of these black sites. It, it's a. It, it just occurred to me how, uh, I guess, high risk, kind of low reward this pattern of development actually was
2: yeah go ahead
0: I I, I wanted to ask you I, you've got Lancaster up and I think it's a really good example I did want to ask you another question from from I'm scrolling down the list here and this may relate to this one it might not I don't want to sidetrack you too much but I, I know you've struggled with this one the way I have and so I want to ask this one from Ethan Green He says, have you found a a particular strategy that's effective for communicating these ideas at the local level? Uh, He says, if I want to implement this in my city, do I just show up to public hearings? Do I write op-eds? Do I set up meetings with policymakers? What do I do to get these ideas into practice? You you have been more effective than I have at this. But I know we've both struggled because we both, uh, you know, (laughs) struggle with, um, how do I say this? uh, with dumb outcomes, right? Uh, we, we both don't yeah. suffer, suffer fools. Well, uh, how do you, how do you do this? How, how do you, how do you take the data you've got? How do you take the information you have and the insights you have and, and communicate that?
2: Well, um, you know, 65% of any audience or any group of people are visual learners. About 90% of human information comes through our eyes. Um, I'm a graphics person. And so I see this as a level of, you you have to tell a story. You can't just like roll out with like, I've done this report and you just start dropping reports Here's on the people.
0: spreadsheet, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. People are too, people are too busy. And in defense of elected officials, you know, they win a popularity contest and they're managing a multi-billion dollar corporation. I actually don't fault the politicians. I have a, I have a bigger problem when they refuse to take the information. Yeah. But, but I, and I think you and I have kind of witnessed this, um, you know, it, it's, it's more of a frustration inside our own professions, you know, that, that we're complicit uh, right. in, this, in this disinformation, that, that I've seen planners that can't figure out how to run a tax bill, you know, or I see, you know, what, they, they, they want to be the judge of real estate development, yet they've never built anything right that is a huge flaw inside the planning profession it's like could you imagine any other profession working that way like could you imagine if if the judges judging figure skating never wore a pair of skates like would we take them seriously no right and yet we've developed the system of these cops
0: or the the judge at the courthouse never having had a law, yeah you know law degree right
2: Yeah. So, so I, I think, I think we need to be humble enough to, to, to question ourselves as professionals now for the advocate for the strong towner in the room, you know, bring examples, find podcasts And, and see, this is a long haul. Don't, don't see it as, I need to just overwhelm people with a mountain of evidence. You know, you have to start small, tell a story, find a local example. There's some great, um, there's actually some great Ted talks online on how to give a Ted talk. Um, you know, and, I think that's, that's actually one of the things that you and I have in common is this kind of narrative way of explaining things. Right. Um, you know, and it's not to come out and just bully the audience and shame them into, into feeling awful. You have to make people curious. You have to give them information and allow them to see it with new eyes. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And let me ask you this, cause I, I, this is the experience that I've had. Um, i stand up in front of crowds all the time uh i will be this week in wichita and chattanooga and i can see people's brains like exploding and the, and the reaction i get afterwards is like oh my gosh this changed my life this is so important this is so great but then i go to my local whatever rotary club or i go to my local city council and i say the exact same thing in the exact same way and they're like yeah you know it's chuck whatever
2: yeah um, What what, what, I got, I got got the same problem here. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, frankly, I don't care. You know, it's, it's I'm presenting next, I'm presenting Wednesday, two days. I'm taking a a project in front of the planning board, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I don't feel like it's been a fair conversation that the city's allowed, you know, tractor trailers to, to happen on a residential street yet somehow I'm the bad guy because I'm trying to point out to the, to the community how stupid it is. Right. You know, whatever, whatever. I'll be dead in twenty years. You know, so I'm not here for to make friends. I'm here to help propel better city design. So, um,
0: whatever. Kevin. <laughs> Kevin Shepard, uh, uh, another one of our founding members uh, with Verdunity out of uh, out of Dallas, along with uh, Dennis Strait, both are asking a question about measuring liabilities. Uh, Kevin was specifically about Lafayette. Um, Dennis just says, you know, how do you, how do you measure liabilities against value? Um, I, I, I want to give you a chance to answer that question. Uh, but I also want to kind of uh, maybe while you're pulling up something here, I, I, I want to make the case for value per acre as a amazing proxy for this deeper analysis. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the one thing that Lafayette taught us more than anything was that the value per acre mapping uh may not give you a hundred percent accuracy in terms of you know the the profit and loss of a parcel by parcel but it sure gets darn close for like a fraction of the effort i mean i feel like as yeah. a proxy for success it is really on to something huge
2: well you know it's value per acre it, you know, it's kind of funny i've got i've actually got the the books sitting over here when you and I were like killing time um, on our little field day up in Boston and we went down into the the Harvard uh, Design School Library and we found all of those books from the early 1900s and I think they were like from 1910 and 1916 and stuff right. like that and uh, one of the metrics that they had in it was value per acre analysis and I started laughing about that I'm like look we've invented the 1916s and and they also had like, the, the, the most cheapest, or the most inexpensive form of transit is the sidewalk. You know, it's like there's strong towns circa 1916. You know, it, it's, it's a really simple metric. Think of it as, you know, miles per gallon versus miles per tank. You know, it normalizes the information. And the first thing you want to do is normalize the information. Don't let the, you know, don't, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You want to just get something out there, start the conversation and then open the debate. You know, the, the biggest thing I think from the Lafayette experience was, um, you know, going back to your argument of the streets as liability. When you and I were sitting there in front of Lori Tooks, the uh, finance officer, and she was explaining the CAFR standards. Right. And, and then the CAFR standards, they list uh, asphalt, the roads and pipes and all that stuff is an asset. And they actually have a depreciation schedule, which makes it even more amazing that they actually figure out when it's going to fall apart. They just don't apply that into a reserve account for fixing it. Right. And that's they where just, in, they just become poorer every year. And like, Oh, well, <laughs> how'd that happen? Why are we not, why are we not meeting our capital needs? Right. And, um, and, you know, you were arguing with her about it. Like, why is this? Why is this? And I, I held up my computer and said, Lori, look, my computer depreciates but I can sell it to you. Can you sell your roads to Baton Rouge? And she goes, no. And then you just immediately snap back. Lori, that's a a liability. That's a
0: liability. It's not an asset. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And like the light bulb went off for her, but she was like (laughs) freaked out because like we're now taking her way outside her comfort zone, outside the CAFR standards. Right. And we we told her, we said, look, Lori, we're not going to follow your CAFR standards. No one's going to show up from the GFOA in Chicago and give us a demerit. You know, but, but in her defense, she's been practicing the best rules of her profession. Right. Uh, and it's sad. And it's since that time I've gone to the GFOA, presented this stuff to them. I showed them the Lafayette model and I blamed them for, for masking the, the utter collapse of every American city that's going on right now. Right. And it was, you know, yeah. it was kind of, a, I'll admit it. I was kind of a jerk, you know, but I, I was doing that to be provocative. Right. And it was really funny. One of the finance officers during Q I and mean, A, and they were all stunned. And one of them said to me, are you against my, me having a big yard for my dog and me? And I like my big yard. I said, look, sir, I honestly don't care what you have. I just want you to pay for it. And all of the other finance officers started laughing because these are the math people, right? right. These are the accountants. Right. right. And I think, I think that of all of your work in strong towns and what you've initially kicked off, you know the, the the ripple effect of that tremor that you started. I guess the flapping of the butterfly wings from that that you know the, the first strong towns talk is is that's what needs to change inside the system. We just we just visualize it to 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 make it real. So uh, who is this Kevin yeah. Shepard guy? I'm just kidding. The um. <laughs> <laughs> so Kevin. If there's one thing you could do, it's just bring that time present into the model. So so our model is a 50 year collapse of that system so it's like how do we take the whole thing as a whole reserve account in all that time and put that into the reserve account of the money and then project that back out so basically it's the road you drive on you're paying for its savings fund too
0: right right. yeah instead of uh i I think from an accounting sense and i sat down with an economist around the time we were working on lafayette i sat down and, and he was defending the the, uh, you know, the, the accounting approach that cities take. And, uh, you know, I, basically tried to make the case, and I think ultimately at the end, there was some consensus that we should at least be tracking these liabilities as we accumulate them. You know, if, if you want to have the road be an asset and then depreciate it, that's fine. But you're also, you know, have an obligation to fix this
2: thing. I mean, that's why you're collecting taxes, so start thing, to accrue that liability somewhere. The thing that blows my mind about economists is like, okay, fine. Yeah, you're smart. Thanks. Thanks for showing me your brain and how smart <laughs> you are with all this stuff out. That, that you've got some little little head of the needle that you're going to stand on and defend this thing. But can we all at least acknowledge the fact that the American city as we know it, across the entire country, every single city is broke. Right. Right. Like, uh, it's not pensions, you know, it can't right. be, that's a piece of it, but it's, if, if you, if you look at any American city, how is it we can't afford basic stuff? You know, it's like, hello, it's it's not because of your defensible argument that you've defended that the CAFR standards work in a certain little bubble inside a, in a container, inside a little Ziploc bag that's inside that, that in that world that maybe works. And yeah. when we go outside this, this world, we can see that it doesn't work.
0: Your theory might not be actually working in the real world yeah yeah so um chase uh chase anderson kid asks um how can uh, the everyday planner use their annual budget to assess the solvency of their city and uh you know is there a good rule of thumb uh for using that process to uh to, to nudge you towards understanding that very situation of of your going broke if you were gonna, if you were gonna give some advice there, what would it be, Joe? Wow.
2: Well, um, well, that's a good question, Chase. I, you know, if there's a video online that you can probably find of, um, I, I did it at the Esri conference, and it's the last nine minutes of that video. We do a, um, I guess, the equivalent of an opportunity cost model of different decisions. In this in this public grocery store in Chattanooga, and the developer was asking to just get rid of all the zoning and just do conventional suburbia. Um, so we were, we ran the other alternatives of if you did this, what would you get? And just to show the the cash flow. Doing case studies like that, I find they're are, are really really helpful. When you look at the budget on an annual basis, if there were some rules of thumb there. Um, one is talk, talk to your finance officer and ask them about the, um, what they have on the depreciation schedule and have them educate you on that because they have us again, going back to what we just talked about in the, the, the previous segment, the, um, they do have a depreciation, um, number out there on the roads. If you want to go so far as to map that, that would be even better, um, but you're going to find that might be a little difficult because the engineering department may or may not know uh, which streets are where, kind of thing. Um, but I think if you start getting into that practice of, of of breaking down the barrier between finance, engineering, and planning, and making it all tie together, it would make the planning argument more strong. Um, if if that makes sense, why well, doesn't I think that, that... Would apply? Go, go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, that seems. I, I, I'm. I'm. I hear what you're saying. It seems very common sense. why doesn't this happen in government? Why, is, why does the, the, the finance director come forth with a one year budget and you know has done that by you know, asking the planning department for their budget and the engineering department for their budget and the parks department for their budget? Why is this not a more holistic approach?
2: Well, um, you know I, I think got there's. There's got to be an answer in there somewhere. I I think that for me right now, the best thing that I can figure out is I think this is the end result of modernism, you know, that, that postmodernism is now making its way into government, you know, but, but if you think about modernism, it was all about the division of labor, the division of, of, of sciences. It's about analytics, drilling down and finding the, you know, what's, what is art? Well, we can create this thing called modern art, which is an abstraction of art and, distills it down to just a couple of lines on a piece of paper, then that becomes art, right? It doesn't have to have all the other stuff before the modern movement. If you pull like the city books that we were talking about earlier from the early 1900s, they crossed the gamut of economics, engineering design, human quality, you know, it's just all messy in there, but modernism broke it apart. And so when I went to work in government and I was a zoning administrator for the downtown of West Palm beach, it was a waste of my time to be hanging out with the public works department or the finance department, because I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about. You know, it just didn't apply to me because I got zoning to take care of. And, and to be honest with you, most, most of planners that I see, you know, they're They're, they're, they're stuck in this process treadmill. A lot of it is of their own making, you know, it's, i hate to admit it. They make lots of crazy processes that make things even more and more complex. And then they hate the complexity, but yet they're the ones that are holding the steering wheels. Right. Right. You know, so I I think those are the things that, that need to need to be owned up to. Uh, I was just at the APA conference.
0: Oh, Um, were you in new Orleans? Yeah. Okay.
2: (laughs) You don't look enthused Joe. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I think as a profession, we need to own the fact that we're kind of, we're, we're kind of off the rails. Yeah, You know, there, there were, there were so many, like the, the, the conference sessions on, um, uh, inclusionary zoning and, and, and basically the punitive stuff of planning. How do we beat the snot out of a developer to get what was we want. like, right. Yeah. It was, was like super, super packed. And what was frustrating is like, do you even understand how development happens? And the, you know, inclusionary zoning is the economic effect of some other policies that are in place, which is a, it's very difficult to get a piece of real estate in your town in Seattle, you know, yet you and I could drive through Seattle and see plenty of surface parking lots all around the city, right. you know, so the so other economic factors at play that maybe we should have at the table. And it's, you know, it's frustrating to watch a, an organization like link, Lincoln Land Institute push for changes in the tax system, yet we in planning don't quite understand how to pull that off. So we'll just, you know, we'll just pick up another club to beat somebody with in inclusionary zoning. So, okay, I've gotten off topic, but what I'm, I guess what I'm getting to is that we we become our own problem when we allow our own processes to become difficult. We don't have those conversations. Right,
0: right. I, I, I do think that you you're right on with the modernism part and the fact that basically in the name of, from a government standpoint, efficiency, we've created processes that are you know, separate from each other and don't really function. I, I tell city governments, actually, I, f- I feel like you need to get more, uh, you need to get messier. Like your process needs to actually get slower in a way um, and it will give you better outcomes. In other words, instead of streamlining every, everything and getting a bunch of dumb outcomes, make it a little bit slower you know, more collaborative and, uh, and, and, and a little more level, and you will get maybe not quite as quick an approval, although in some places, you know, that's bizarre too. But uh, you'll get better outcomes.
2: Well, in, in the, the form-based code that I managed in West Palm Beach, I think the fastest zoning permit I gave was 15 minutes. Right. You know, right. Because we, we basically had a pre-approved document in the master plan and we drew, well, I, I, we didn't, I didn't draw, but, you know, Duany Plater-Zyberg drew the whole damn downtown out and then we coded off that image. So if you came close to the image, it's like, good, you're done out the door, you know? And um, I remember the planners that I worked with uh, used to treat me differently. And they're like, Oh, you're a designer. You're not a, you're not a planner. And I was like, no, what I have is still a zoning code. It's still a volume, you know, it's, but, you know, I think, I think that what, what strong towns is doing, that's awesome. And I don't know if this was part of your nefarious plot to overthrow the world, but it's to get people to think like, like generalists and to mainstream that information and get outside your comfort realm. So for any, any, any uh, outside of the, the activists for any citizen, any, any strong towner that's in government, get outside your comfort realm, you know, go and take a course in finance or go and, Uh, try something different, go to a different conference outside of the APA, go to a GFOA conference or an assessor's conference or something to try to shake up your thinking about how planning works as a professional. Well, you keep
0: sending me all these planning books and they're the only planning books that I've read in the last uh, 15 years. So you keep uh, getting me to read these like 1910 road design books or whatever. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you this uh, Scott Englander, uh, wants to know kind of a practical question. He said, are, are you aware of any cities or towns that encompass both urban and suburban areas that differentiate their tax rates between the two to help offset the cross-subsidy? And I would just expand that to say, are, are you aware of anybody who does this in any way, whether it's utility bills or uh, you know district fees or anything like that? Um, are, are you aware of any government who actually allocates their their revenues in this way.
2: Um yeah, I mean I, I think uh, well for, for I think we're we're where Scott's going with this question probably Canadians um would be the best example. Um <laughs> you know, I don't know if, if I don't know if Scott can type in where he where he lives, but one of the things that that I find is our our painful uh illiteracy with the Canadians and how they operate and I would recommend that anybody chat with a Canadian um and and see how they do things. They are different. Um, and yet somehow they speak the same language as us and they look just like us too. But, um, the Canadians apply that inside their tax system, but, but at a basic level, most municipalities, um, in their water rates charge differential rates. So you'll see what I think you'll, what we'll start to see is, is more of a fee based structure where it comes from the water or utilities where they start to charge that. Um, and it dep- again, that depends on the utility as well, but but mostly like like uh, you can just go up the street here to Weaverville, North Carolina, a town of twelve thousand people, and they 've got or six thousand people and they 've got differential water rates so that 's the basis for how you would apply it at a property tax basis um, at a property tax level, uh, The Canadians are the ones that are really charging that differential rate
0: so when we looked at the sewer bills in Lafayette, one of the things we found was that everybody was paying the same bill for a, a standard residential home, even though you were way out on the edge and, and you had to get your sewage pumped a dozen times versus, you know, when you're in the core and it just flowed by gravity. I, I've never seen anybody address that issue. Have you, have you seen anyone try to take that one on and charge those people out on the edge more because they simply cost way more?
2: Um, I haven't seen it yet, you know, but that was our recommendation to Lafayette was to, you know, if you, you know, if you if your sewerage has to go through 14 different lift stations, then you should pay for a little piece of each of the 14.
0: Yeah. Maybe one we'll more, right.
2: Yeah. And so, and, and the thing was, you know, allowing us to go through that process and, and explaining that to the community, um, help them have that conversation. Now I haven't circled back to Lafayette to figure out whether or not they've applied it. Um, in say uh,
0: they've not applied
2: that, but yeah, well, that's but, the politics.
0: Speaking of Lafayette, I, I, I have, we have a question here from our friend Pat, uh, who I, I've stayed at his place. I don't know if you got that pleasure or not. Um, Pat wants to know, why would a broke county or parish ever approve another permit for a development out on the edge that requires the county to maintain the infrastructure? How do you get staff and elected to understand the high cost of free money? I, I think there's a, a little hyperbole in the first one. Um, but, uh, I hear his frustration. Why is this, you know, at this point when you have the data and you have the, uh, the math, um, why do we keep doing, uh, harmful things to ourselves, Joe? Because we're human. Because we're human. Yeah.
2: Yeah. We're hairless apes, uh, operating with quirky behavior. Um, you know, it's, we do destructive things, uh, you know. You and I've people ask me all the time, like, "What books do you read?" And I like start rattling off all of the behavioral books that I'm reading, and y- and you do the same. Um, uh, one of the one of the conferences I crashed, I, I was, I, I think I came up and visited you in Minneapolis. So it was the Behavior Analysts. It was uh, Applied Behavior Analysis International, is a behaviorist conference. And I crashed their subcommittee called BAS, Behavior Analysts for Sustainable Societies. And they explained it. They, it's called uh, delayed discounting or temporal discounting. But basically, um, we're as is, is hairless apes, we're really good at ignoring um, today's pain and discount it out in the future. So the example they gave me was a 20-year-old smoking cigarettes. And they said that, you know, a 20-year-old's not going to quit. They're going to tell you, I'm not addicted. I'm going to quit when I'm 40. I'm going to be that 180-year-old that still smokes. Because the pleasure of that nicotine buzz is greater than the feeling of pain. Now, if you actually felt the lung cancer as you smoked on that cigarette, you'd be more apt to quit. So the thing that we tried in Lafayette was making that, that bloody, drippy model of right. all of the costs. And right. that was a very, that was a very deliberate move to visually convey the economic pain. Um, and Pat who's in Lafayette knows the results of that, that even with that, even showing them the lung cancer, the community's having a hard time getting off that addiction. So the carrots that are out there are still too great for that developer to continue to go out to the edge because the system hasn't fully collapsed you know, it's just the roads are still there. They're a little bumpy, you know, the flooding, they just had you, y'all in Lafayette, you just had this massive friggin' flood, you know, and that flood should have been your harbinger to stop the behavior, but there's it's like it's, the
0: palpitation that should have uh, warned you of yeah. the impending heart attack. Right.
2: But, um, you know, this is where you get into Machiavelli, you know, there's too many people that make too much money doing the wrong thing and it's hard to convince them all to change their behavior. So how do you reset the reward system um, so that they can change? I've had a lot of people tell me, um, where was I just last week and probably tomorrow when I go to, to Naples, they, they find the one developer who's made all this money doing the exact wrong thing. And they want me to somehow convince that person to change their ways. And I just tell them, I'm like, look, this person has made so much money doing the exact wrong thing they're conditioned that this is success, right? They've got all the trappings of success. They drive an expensive car. They, they, get, they get paid a lot of money for doing the wrong thing. Why would they do something different? So until we start changing that economic model and allow people to still make their money, but doing the right thing for the community, um, I think that's going to be the key thing.
0: Let me ask you this sure. as a follow-up to that. And, and I think this is probably, and I apologize to everybody who's got a question in there. Uh, this may have to be the last, the last one. Um, Pam Zedek uh, wants to know: Have you found that towns, cities in distress or crisis, are more open? And, and I'm assuming the question is more open to uh, to the data and the analysis and, and seeing things differently. Uh, how would you answer that one, Joe?
2: The short answer is yes. Um, they still have a hard time. Uh, we saw this in in uh, South Bend, Indiana, Buffalo, um, New York, Syracuse, New York. Um, you know, these are places that don't have the economic strength of let's say, uh, Atlanta or, um, West Palm beach, Florida. Um, but there is, there is again, back, back to human behavior a quirk in there, generally people that are broke and it's just think of being human when you're, when you're out of work, you're, you're probably not going to have that $5 a day latte habit, right? Right. You're going to make better kitchen table, economic choices. Uh, when you're making money hand over fist, oftentimes people don't evaluate why that's happening. And so we find that it's easier to work with people that are struggling a little bit. Um, Lancaster, California is doing a phenomenal job because they're way out in the middle of nowhere outside of Los Angeles in the edge of Los Angeles County, and they know their limitations. So they're at the level of, okay, we need to, we need to make smarter decisions. Uh, We saw that in uh, places like Peoria, um, at Peoria, Illinois, we modeled their retail taxes. That was the first time any city in the state of Illinois had modeled their retail tax production. Right. I think there's bigger cities than Peoria in Illinois, like Chicago, and they haven't done it. So, you know, to, kudos to Peoria for stepping out there and saying, how's this all work? Um, but you know, it's all, it, there's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever read any Richard Thayer, Oh, yeah uh, Nobel, yes, he calls it gambler theory right so when uh when somebody wins a hundred dollars, they go in with a hundred bucks and that's play money to play at the casino and they win a hundred dollars, they put that first hundred dollars in their pocket and it's called my money. the second hundred dollars is called house money, and they mentally change the uh risk on that second hundred dollars right. well it's still it's still a hundred bucks. Why should I just change the risk on it just because? It, it came from the casino. It's still mine now. You know, I, should just, I should be as protective of that. But that's, when you see that, the house money effect, that's like, that's like uh, you know, what you see in Phoenix or Dallas or whatever, where magically people show up there because of whatever, oil or retirement or something. And they, the communities feel like they've done something good to earn that. And oftentimes, they had nothing to do with it. At the other end of the spectrum is when people are down to their last dollar, like Buffalo, uh, I shouldn't say Buffalo. Maybe let's say Niagara Falls, New York. And what ends up happening in that situation is you have this memory of you had that $100 when you walked in, but now I've frittered away that 99 bucks. I'm down to that last dollar. Sometimes what's really sad is when you see them just go, screw it. Just a right. buck. What do I right. care? Right. And they, they're willing to throw this Hail Mary pass on something. So you see this in my hometown where they tore down the downtown and built that wooden fort that you and I walked around, or what you see what's going on in Utica, New York right now where they're tearing out, was it 34 acres of their downtown to build a stupid hospital?
0: Gutting the downtown. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I don't think there's a magic solution anywhere. And I think that anybody that's at the other end of this podcast, just be patient, uh, try bring information forward, learn, uh, question your own biases and put your biases out there. Just say this. These are my biases going in. Let's have a discussion about it. I want to hear your biases and challenge your elected official, uh, your your government staff, whomever, to their biases and to have an honest conversation and bring data into the conversation.
0: My apologies to everybody whose whose question we didn't get to. Obviously, we we only have an hour and we could do this for a long, long time. Uh
2: Joe We could, we could do we could do another one.
0: We could do another one. I think we will do another one. <laughs> okay. Uh Dude, I, I love you. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, before we're done, on the way out, um, I know there's no, <laughs> no don't do that. There's, uh, there's, um, there's no official like release and I don't want you to, uh, I, I don't want you to, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you, um, can you tease us a little bit about the side project you, you sequestered yourself on a, a few weeks back and went and did some, some writing in the hills and oh, came yeah. back. Are you working on something, Joe, something? Trying to,
2: uh, trying to work on a book, um, which as you know, is not easy. Um, plus I'm not much of a writer. Um, I'm more of a talker, but, um, yeah, the working title is called, uh, growing broke right now. Um, so it's how communities grow, but grow in a way that's kind of uh, kind of drives themselves broke. Um, uh, but it's a lot of the lessons that we've discovered along the way. Um, some of the stories of data, and I get asked a lot I And mean, you know you get asked all the time that when you present somebody's they, they get excited and they want more information and I kind of feel bad that I just kind of roll on to the next town. And I don't have an object that has all collected in it and plus we have really really cool graphics. The team here is amazing they produce incredible stuff um, yeah. so we, we, we need to have a full color. I want to, I want to do it as a pop-up book with like, you know, like the models popping up, but that's too expensive. Well, let's
0: get going. Cause you and I both, I have an interview in like three minutes. Can we, okay. can you do something for me? Can you pressure Josh to do one of these? I know he hates like being on camera. He hates like public speaking. Um, and, and we'd have to, the audience would have to cut him a little bit of slack because he is kind of one of these hermits that, you know, likes to be <laughs> off in a dark room by himself but uh, it's so much fun to pick uh, Josh's brain, and I, I would love to let people do that.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, no, we'll get Josh on it. It'd be even more fun to like ply him with some whiskey and let him do some <laughs> Scottish accents. But, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. All right, we'll, we'll pull him out of his. We'll pull him out of his shell. That'd be okay. good. All right. Uh, Thanks for your time.
0: Yep. I'll see you in uh, in Savannah. All right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's yeah, great. Great seeing you too. Take care, friend. Keep it up.
0: Thank you. Take
2: care you too. Bye. Bye.
1: Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Oh, they know that America's one big hole right now. Oh, my, my. Just to
2: echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions.